Welcome to Abergavenny Baptist Church, growing in faith and friendship. Well, we're now going to have our Bible reading, uh, which is from Galatians chapter 3 and verses 15 to 25. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds meaning many people, but to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would have certainly come by the law. But Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So we continue in our series through the book of Galatians, uh, entitled Freedom in Jesus. And today we're looking at Galatians chapter 3 and verses 15 to 25, where Paul contrasts the promises of God with the laws of God. Now hopefully you will remember that there were these troublemakers, uh, these Jewish followers of Jesus from Jerusalem who had come up to Galatia and they were telling everyone there that faith in Jesus was not enough to be righteous in the eyes of God. Uh, their equation was faith in Jesus plus the works of the law would equal favor with God. And Paul is saying, no, no, no. The equation is faith in Jesus plus nothing equals favor with God. That's the gospel. That's the good news. There is absolutely nothing we need to do. There, there is no law that we have to obey in order to earn God's favor. That's the gospel. And, and Paul has been saying a lot of negative things about the law. So, for example, in chapter 2, in verse 16, he says, By the works of the law, no one will be justified. No one will be declared right in the eyes of God. And in chapter 2, in verse 19, he says, I died to the law so that I might live for God. And in chapter 2, in verse 21, he says, If righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. 
And in chapter 3, in verse 2, he says, did, this, did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? And obviously, we do not receive the Holy Spirit by works of the law. And then in chapter 3, in verse 10, he says, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. So he seems to have quite a negative view of the law. And you might be thinking, but hold on, Paul. If that is right, then why did God give us the law in the first place? What is the purpose of the law? And if, that, if, if you're wondering that, if that's the question you've got, then it shows that you've been concentrating as we've been working through the book of Galatians because that is the exact question you should be asking at this point in the letter. And this is the very question that Paul is about to address. As Paul says in verse 19, Why then was the law given at all? Or in verse 21, he says, Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? And by promises of God, he's referring to the gospel, being saved by faith in Jesus. So is the law opposed to the gospel? And many Christians today have the question, uh, you know, is there a conflict between the Old Testament with its focus on the law and, and the New Testament with its focus on the gospel, on grace? Is there a conflict? And Paul's answer, I'll give it away right at the beginning, Paul's answer is no. <laughs> no, there isn't a conflict, but you need to understand that the promises and the law have a different function and role. And if you understand the different function and role of the promises and the law, you will see that there is actually a coherence. There is actually an underlying unity. And so Paul gives us a framework to understand the whole Bible to, and to see that there is a coherency and, a, and an underlying unity throughout the whole Bible. And he does this by dividing the Bible into three periods, three sections. And he uses three people to illustrate these three eras. So firstly, you have Abraham. Secondly, you have Moses. And thirdly, you have Jesus. And so Abraham represents the promise. Moses, then secondly, represents the law. And Jesus, thirdly, represents fulfillment. Okay, so let's look at Abraham and the promise first. So we read in verse 16. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Okay, what promise is this? Was well, going all the way back to the book of Genesis, the very first book in, in the Bible, God makes a promise to Abraham. And we can actually read about this in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 8. It says, Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. And so here comes the promise. And Paul is quoting from Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3. And he says, All nations will be blessed through you. That's God's promise. All nations will be blessed through you. And to be blessed... <laughs> Blessing is talking about experiencing life in all its fullness. 
It's talking about experiencing a spiritual blessing. It's talking about experiencing eternal life. It's talking about experience that intimate and close relationship with God, being part of God's family. And of course, that blessing, it's only the Holy Spirit that can bring that blessing into a person's life. And this is God's original intention. God wants all people from all nations to be blessed. He doesn't just want the Jewish people, but he wants everyone to be part of his family. And the way you become part of God's family is not through ethnicity. It's not through being Jewish. It's not through being the physical sons and daughters of Abraham as the Jews were claiming. The way we become part of God's family is simply by believing in the promise, by putting our faith in the promise. As soon as you put your faith in Jesus, your faith in the promise, you become the spiritual children of Abraham and you become heirs to the promise and you receive the Holy Spirit. That's God's original intention. And God promises this to Abraham. He promises it to him. And, and, and God will never break his promise. God will never change his mind or alter his plans. So Paul says in verse 15 and then verse 17, Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant, that's speaking to, about a will and a testament, that has been duly established, so it is in this case. Verse 17, what I mean is this, the law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. Okay, so Paul takes an example from everyday life and he's talking about a will and a testament. So when someone dies and the will has been read and ratified, there is nothing you can do to change it. And Paul's saying, and so is, it's just like that with God's promise. When God makes you a promise, there is nothing that can change it. Absolutely nothing that can change it. Even the law, which was introduced for over 400 years later, cannot change or alter the promise that God originally made. And in verse 18, Paul says, For if the inheritance depends on the law then it no longer depends on the promise. But God in His grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. See, now there's a difference between a promise agreement and a law agreement. Okay, so if I was to make you a promise, a promise agreement, if I was to promise you something, if I said, I promise to give you a thousand pounds. I've got, a, I've got an envelope up here. It's got a thousand pounds in it. It's got your name on it. And uh, it's, if you come and get it, it's yours. I promise. What do you have to do to receive that thousand pounds? All you have to do is believe the promise. I mean, if you don't believe the promise, if you're like, Haha, that's a scam, I'm not going to fall for that, you won't receive it. But if you believe the promise, it's yours. In a law agreement, I would say something like, I'm going to give you a thousand pounds if, you cut down all the trees in my farm and haul them away. You see the difference? In a promise agreement, it depends on the one making the promise. It only depends on the one making the promise. 
It, it's got nothing to do with us. All we have to do is believe, is trust. And if you trust the one making the promise, great. I mean, if someone phones you up and says, uh, you've won a million pounds, all you've got to do is give me your bank details. Don't trust that. You wouldn't trust that. But it all depends. You see, it all depends on the one making the promise. If we can trust the promise maker, that's all it, all it entails. And we can trust God. God will never break his promise. Whereas with a law agreement, it all depends on us. It has everything to do with us. It has everything to do whether we do or whether we have done what was asked and required. It's got everything to do with us. And Paul is saying that the inheritance either comes by a promise or it comes by law. It can't be both. If you try and mix it, put them both together, it's law. Do you see that? I mean, if you've got to do anything to earn it, it's no longer on the basis of a promise. But our salvation is based on a promise. God promises to Abraham, I'm going to do this, and he doesn't say, if you do that. You see, a promise says, I will, I will. The law says, you shall, you shall. But our salvation is based on a promise, and therefore it's got nothing to do with us. It doesn't depend on us. It's got everything to do on the one who makes the promise, and we can trust God. We can have absolute assurance of our salvation because God will never break his promise. He'll never change his mind or alter his plans. And therefore we can have absolute assurance of salvation because it doesn't depend on us. It only depends on the one making the promise. And God is faithful. Okay, so we've dealt with Abraham and the promise. Now let's skip the law and jump straight to Jesus and fulfillment. Don't worry, we'll get back to the law. But let's jump straight to Jesus and fulfillment. How were these promises fulfilled? God made these promises to Abraham. How were these promises fulfilled? We read in verse 16. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. So late in the book of Genesis, it becomes very clear. So if you look in, say, Genesis chapter 22 and verse 18, it becomes very clear that God's promises to Abraham were going to be fulfilled through his seed. Now, seed is referring to his offspring or his descendant. Okay, uh, so then Paul carries on. He says, Scripture does not say and to seeds, meaning many people, but to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. Now you might be thinking, whoa, whoa, just hang on there, Paul. Sure, the word seed is singular, means one person, but surely it's a collective noun. And therefore it refers to a whole lot of people. It's referring to all the descendants of Abraham to the Jewish people. Well, yes and no. So the word seed... It clearly does refer to either many descendants or it can refer to a single descendant. So on one level, it does refer to the whole Jewish nation. And, and on one level, they did bring the knowledge of God and the wisdom of God to the nation. So in that sense, they did bless the nations. But... In no way have they brought true spiritual blessing and eternal life in the Holy Spirit to all the nations. There's no way they've done. Jesus, however, is the ultimate descendant of Abraham. 
And he truly fulfills the promise. He brings true spiritual blessing, eternal life in the Holy Spirit to all nations. And therefore we can read in verse 26, uh, Paul says, So in Christ you are all children of God through faith. And in verse 29 he says, If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. You see, Jesus fulfills all of God's promises. And Jesus fully embodies spiritual blessing, life and life to the full, eternal life in the Holy Spirit. And if we put our faith in Jesus, then we become children of God, spiritual children of Abraham, Abraham's seed, and heirs to the promise. Okay, so... We've we looked at Abraham and the promises and we've seen how they've been fulfilled in Jesus and that if we put our faith in Jesus, then we will become heirs to the promise. We will experience that, that blessing, the Holy Spirit, in our life. So the question is, well, why is there the law in the middle? <laughs> What's the purpose of the law? Well, the law has, has two, two major functions, a negative role and a positive role. A negative role and a positive role. Let's look at the positive, uh, sorry, the negative role first. And we read in verse 19. Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. So take note, it was added. It, it, it wasn't there from the beginning. It's been added. And also take note that it's a temporary measure until. Until the seed, that's referring to Jesus, until Jesus comes. So it's a temporary measure that's been added until Jesus comes. But why was this temporary measure added? Because of transgressions. Okay, what does that mean? It means that the law was like a magnifying glass showing Israel their sin, highlighting their sin, that the law defined sin. It, it showed them what sin was. And, and then it showed them, it exposed sin. It showed them the sin in their life. You see, up until this point, they'd been greedy, they'd been selfish, they'd been coveting other people's stuff. Never thought anything was wrong with that. Then they got the law of God, which said, do not covet. And suddenly they went, oh, we too are sinners. So the, the law showed them what sin was, exposed the sin, and also showed them how these selfish and, and, uh, and greedy thoughts and actions were an offense to God. It highlighted their sin. It highlighted their need for forgiveness and their need for a Savior. Now, of course, there's nothing wrong with the law. There's no problem with the law. We've got the problem. The problem's with us. And so the, the law, which is good, ended up declaring Israel guilty and all humanity with her. As Paul says in verse 22, but Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin. So Scripture has declared that everyone is under the control of sin. Everyone is a prisoner of sin and therefore everyone is guilty. So to put it simply, the law shows us what sin is, it highlights the sin in our life, and it declares us guilty. That's a negative role of, of the law, but it also has a positive role. Uh, in fact, it's got two positive roles. It restrains sin, and it points us to Jesus. Read in verse 23, 
Paul says, but before the coming of this faith, that's referring to before the coming of Jesus, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that would come or would be revealed. So over here, Paul is liking the law to a prison guard who is keeping us under house arrest. We've been restrained in order to prevent sin from spreading. It's kind of like being in protective custody. You've been restrained, but it's for your own good. It's for your own protection. It's to to keep sin in check. Or to use a different analogy, it's like being placed in quarantine. Uh, It's quite obvious that all humanity has been infected with sin, and the remedy, the cure, is to be found in Abraham's seed, But Abraham's family is also part of humanity, so they are also infected. So the very people who have the solution are also part of the problem. The very doctors who have the cure are also infected. So the doctors need to go into quarantine until the medication that they have, the cure they have, is ready to be applied. And so in a similar way, the law has placed the the Jewish people into quarantine. Until the true solution of the problem, the true solution to sin, faith in Jesus, can be applied. Paul then says in verse 24, So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Over here he's clearly liking the law to a guardian. It's probably not the greatest translation. It's referring more to a child binder. And in those days, the child minder would have been a slave that was put in charge. (laughs) Ellen's nodding her head. uh, A slave who was put in charge of looking after the child until the child came of age. And so the the child minder, the slave, had the responsibility to take the child to school and to take the child back from school and to protect the child from harm and to teach the child manners. And uh, the child minders in those days were always uh, depicted as very harsh disciplinarians. They were always in pictures, were shown to have a stick or a cane, a rod in their hand. Uh, and, and again, it's showing how the law was re- uh, fulfilling this function of restraining sin. It was constantly rebuking and pointing out all your mistakes and punishing you when you got things wrong. And again, it shows also its inability to change us. And therefore, it highlights our need for a savior, and it leads us to Jesus. And so, just as the child minder would lead uh, the child to to the teacher to school, so the the law leads us and points us to Jesus. And then Paul ends in verse twenty five, and he says, "Now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian." I mean, it would be absolutely absurd to place yourself back under quarantine. When you've got the cure. It'll be absolutely absurd to place yourself back under a childminder when you've come to age and you mature. Equally, it'll be just as absurd to place yourself back under the law and to try and find favor with God through the law when God has already accepted you, already forgiven you, already blessed you and put you as part of his family because of your faith in Jesus. It'll be absolutely absurd to go back to the temporary measure. And so from this passage, we learn a number of things. Firstly, we, we learn how to read the Old Testament. We learn how to make the distinction between a promise and a law in the Old Testament. And we also learn that the story has moved on. 
that Jesus has fulfilled both the promises and the law of the Old Testament. And we learn that the law and the promises aren't in conflict, but they have different roles. But ultimately, both of them are leading people and pointing people to Jesus. And so they're working together in different ways to point people to Jesus, to faith in Jesus. And so the Old Testament is good, and it is God-given. But the, the laws that placed Israel into quarantine have been set aside, not because the laws were bad or ineffective, quite the opposite. It's because the laws were good and effective. But their task is now complete. They have pointed people to Jesus, and Jesus has come. Secondly, we learn that we have absolute assurance of salvation. Our salvation is not dependent upon a law, but it's dependent upon a promise. It's not dependent on us and on how good we're doing. It's just dependent upon the one who made the promise. And we know that God will never break his promise. God will never change his mind or alter his plans. And therefore, we can have absolute assurance of our salvation. Thirdly, we can have freedom to fail. Because our salvation is not based on law but on a promise, we have freedom to fail. Have you ever experienced freedom to fail? It's so freeing. You're released from, from fear and anxiety, so you are able to try and obey like you've never obeyed before. You're able to say, oh, I'm really going to try and change my behavior. Oh, I'm really going to try and become more like Jesus. I'm going to change my life. I'm going to change my behavior. And you're able to say that. Why? Because you're no longer under this deadly fear of failure. You used to be, but now you have freedom. Freedom to fail. Freedom to succeed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that we do have that freedom because of Jesus. We thank you that it's, a, it's only because of Jesus that we can enter into this this relationship with you, that we can become part of the family, that we can experience spiritual blessing and life in all its fullness and eternal life. We thank you that it's not based on law, it's not based on how good we are, how sorted we are, how, how much we've earned that right, but it's solely based upon a promise, it's solely based upon you and your promise, and we thank you that we can trust you because you will never break your promise. And Father, we... We thank you that there is this unity. So often we think in the Bible that this is conflict, but ultimately there's this ultimate unity between the law and the promise just pointing to you, the whole point of the Bible. And Father, we pray that we'll never be weighed down with guilt or burdened with fear of failure, but we would experience that freedom, that freedom to fail so that we can have freedom to succeed, to become all that you have called us to be, created us to be, and want us to be. And we thank you for that. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more information about Abergavenny Baptist Church, please visit our website at abergavennybaptist.co.uk.